Tonight's reading is taken from the book of Ruth, from chapter 3, verse 7, to chapter 4, verse 22. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at the feet. Who are you? he asked. I'm your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so that I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabites, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Marlon. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabites, Marlon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. 
Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Empatha and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, have given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. This is God's word. Good evening. Let me add my welcome to Simon's. My name is Matt. And um, this evening we finish off a short series that we've been working through in the book of Ruth. Let me pray and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we've, we've sung that you reign. We've sung that you are king of all the earth. We've sung that you are seated on the throne. Father, it is our prayer that tonight, as we look at this last bit of Ruth, that you will impress those truths upon our hearts deeply. That we may face life assured that you are in control of all things. Please help me to speak. Please help us all to listen. Amen. Okay, the question, I mean, it's it's pretty obvious, isn't it, from this passage? The question we're dealing with tonight is this. Are you living in a Disney story or a despondent story? I'm sure you picked that up. That's the key issue tonight. Let me explain, obviously, what I mean by that. Uh, A Disney story. Uh, Think about the first ten minutes of the film Up. You guys seen that? Yeah. Can make grown men cry, can't it? Even especially softies like me. Megan and I watched it actually over over lunch today. I was I was just yeah, it didn't take long before both of us were in tears. It's um tells the story of um Carl, he's a, he's a young, uh, young boy, he's got adventure in his heart, he wants to go and see the world. And uh, one day, he's just been to cinema or something, he, he bumps into this girl called Ellie, and she's the same age as him. She's young, full of life. She wants to see the world as well. And she says, come here, I'll show you something that I've never shown any other human being. And it's her adventure book, all the things she wants to do. She says, I want to go and see South America, which is like America, but South. And uh, there's, there's sort of a match made, uh, match made in heaven, as it were. Um, the film sort of then breaks into a, a montage. The next thing you see is their wedding photo. Next bit of the montage is them doing up this ramshackle old house. Yeah, you're getting teary now, aren't you? Even thinking of it. Next is ramshackle old house. 
Uh, you see them climbing up a hill to take picnics. You see them gazing at the clouds, imagining shapes in the clouds. Um, until one day they're gazing at the clouds and they all look like babies and they think, oh, okay, maybe that's, maybe it's that time in our marriage. They try for a baby. You see them decorating the nursery and the hope of the, of the imminent new arrival. And in the next scene, you see them in a hospital ward with the doctor breaking the bad news to them. Carl comforting his wife. The sad news that they won't ever be able to have children. You see her sitting out on the porch staring at, staring at the sun in the breeze, trying to, trying to process that in her head. That's kind of when the tears start flowing, if you're me. And then the, the next scene, they say, oh, well, they rediscover that adventure book. They think, right, okay, okay, we're going we're gonna to save up our money so that we can go and see the world. So they put money in this glass jar in their living room each time they walk past. It looks like, it's, looks like the, the money's rising, but then the wheel breaks on their car, so the hammer comes out, smash, empty the glass jar to pay for the repairs. They start again from nothing, put money in each time they go past. Then a branch of a tree smashes through the roof of their house. Out comes the hammer again, smash, and um, they have to pay. And in each bit of the montage, the, you know, the hairs on their head, hairs on their head grow more grey as their hope of having children evaporates, as their hope of seeing the world evaporates. And they try and go for one last picnic up this hill where they've gone all their lives and um, Ellie can't make it this time. And it cuts to her in hospital. And then it cuts to Carl in the, in the church sitting by her coffin. Don't anyone cry now, okay? Don't know. But it is, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's brutal cinema in that sense. But it's a Disney film. The point of a Disney film, it's not that, it's not that, um, it's not that bad things don't happen. They do. But in a Disney film, those things happen in the context of our knowledge that things, despite the bad, are coming towards a happy conclusion. There is purpose. In a Disney film, you know that there is a benevolent story writer who's concerned with every detail of the characters in the story. And by the end of Up, of course, there is joy, there is redemption, there, there is new, new life in that sense. That is the context that the suffering happens in, in a Disney film. That is different to a despondent film, though. I don't know what you think the sort of most despondent, genuinely despondent film you've ever seen is. For me, uh, I think it's a film called Never Let Me Go. Have you guys seen that? It's got Kira Knightley in it. Um, some other actress, and, uh, and the dude who's now uh, the amazing Spider-Man. So, who's that? What's his name? Thank you. And the point, and, and in, that, in, in that film, it's set in an alternate reality, uh, sorry, alternate future, uh, and the sort of, you know, the titles that come up at the beginning of the film say that science has advanced to such a state that people can, can easily live way, way, way beyond 100 years old. In order for that to happen, they have to have their organs um, replaced. Um, with medical advances, what, what society has decided is the right thing to do is to clone human beings from the DNA of the, the trash of society. And the story, the film follows, based on a book, the story um, 
follows the lives of three of these these people created for the sole purpose that in their 20s their organs will be harvested so that nice people in society like you and me can, can carry on living past 100 years old. And it follows their relationship, starts when they're at school in this kind of seemingly idyllic, you know, school in Surrey or somewhere like that. But they are brainwashed. That is the purpose of your life. And your life will be complete when you've donated all your organs in your 20s. And it follows them as, as one by one, <clears throat> they, they donate their organs, not they have a choice. Until the end of the, an end of the movie where um, the last one of the friends is alive, looking out at the sunset, knowing that she's next. Absolutely bleak. Don't watch that when you're feeling down, all right? It'll tip, it'll tip you over the edge. But in, a, in, a, in that sort of movie, in a truly despondent world, there is no benevolent storyteller. Characters are alone against the world. No one is working behind the scenes to bring about a happy ending. Their lives are meaningless in a world that is just random and chance. You live in a Disney story or a despondent story. The wonderful truth about this bit of Ruth is that it is written to comfort us and encouragement, encourage us that reality is a Disney story, not a despondent story. And see, for us, when we are conscious that it isn't just us, sort of cosmic orphans alone against the world, but that a good God is in charge of all life on this planet, including our own lives, then that, that leads us, it does lead us to a, a sort of a thankful humility. But it's not all down to us. When we keep believing um, that an all-knowing God is shepherding all of history towards the happiest of endings. Of course that makes us hopeful people. When we live with a sense of God's sovereign presence, him walking with us in the, in the details, in the everyday of our life, the minutiae, the frustrating, the, the monotonous, the painful and the joyful. I think that, that instills in us a commitment to holiness because we recognise that every bit of our life matters. Ruth is written to persuade and comfort us that we're living in a Disney story, not a despondent story. So let's get into the details. If you've closed your Bibles, we're on page 269. Open them up again. And last week, if you were here, you'll remember that we left on somewhat of a cliffhanger in this wonderful story of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. We, start, we left on verse 13. Boaz says to Ruth, stay here for the night, and in the morning, if, uh, if this other redeemer wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. It's left on a cliffhanger because Ruth, you remember, is a woman from Moab. She's a foreigner. Naomi uh, is an Israelite woman. Uh, and uh, years ago, Naomi followed her husband to Moab, where, the, where they shouldn't have gone because it was away from God's land. And um, Ruth married Naomi's son, Marlon, but disaster struck because Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Marlon, her son, died. And then sort of with tail between their legs, both of them, Ruth and Naomi, returned to Bethlehem. Ruth, an outsider, 
Naomi, a poor widow, sort of with, with nothing really going for them. And verse 13, you see, is a cliffhanger because Boaz is the, is the hero of our story. He's a godly man. He's a kinsman redeemer. What does that mean? Well, that basically means under the, under the customs, under the laws of the day. In this situation where a, a husband died, it was the duty of the brother or the close relative to, to marry the wife to provide a son for her so that the inheritance would continue. And you see, if, if Boaz is going to do this, if Boaz is going to redeem Ruth, then this is a happy story because Boaz is a great guy. Ruth, as it says there, is a, is a godly woman. This is a, this is a wonderful love story coming together. Ruth will be provided for. So it's a cliffhanger because we want, we, we're desperate for Ruth and Boaz to get together. So that's the cliffhanger, verse 13. And then we get into the story, verse 14. And verse 13, lie here until morning. So verse 14, Ruth lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. That is, you know, when night sort of turns to that gray where you can't really, you can make out the silhouette of someone, but not their face. And Boaz says to people, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. We saw last week, nothing inappropriate at all has happened between them. But Boaz is a man of standing. He doesn't want the Bethlehem busybodies to have anything to gossip about. So he says, go before anyone knows what is happening. But as she's about to go, he says, I want to I give you a gift before you go. Bring that shawl. Uh, this is verse 15. He says, bring the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Just a, just a small thing, really, but kind of indicative of what he wants to do for Ruth, to show kindness to her and to provide for her. And so there she is, walking back through town in the, in the early morning to Naomi. And obviously she's very excited because, gosh, she's basically said to Boaz, spread the, you know, the corner of your garment over me. As we saw, literally, spread your wings over me. Will, will you marry me? And she's excited because this, he said, yeah, I'd, I'd love to. So the, the, this could be the day where this, she gets married to this guy. It's very exciting. She's walking back, but she's trying not to get too excited, trying not to sort of imagine what her signature looks like, you know, Mrs. Boaz, Mrs. Ruth Boaz, trying not to get too carried away. And she gets to Naomi, uh, verse 16. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, obviously Naomi's probably been up really early. This is her plan. She's desperate to see how it's panning out. How did it go, my daughter? End of verse 16, Ruth, Ruth tells her everything. But she seems to major on this, um, this, this uh, these six measures of barley that's been given. Verse 17. Boaz gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Nice work, Boaz. It's a good idea to butter up the future in-laws ahead of a marriage. Good good work. But, obviously, there's, there's more to it than that. He says, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And the last time we saw that word empty in the book of Ruth is chapter 1, verse 21. Remember remember Naomi, the bitter woman who came back from Moab, who said, the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Don't call me pleasant, which is what the name Naomi means. Call me Mara, which means bitter. I went away full, but I came back empty. And here is Boaz saying, don't go back your mother-in-law empty-handed. We're reminded that what is at stake is not just a happy marriage for Ruth, but it is the turnaround in the fortunes of Naomi. If you like, it's the redemption of Naomi's story. So the stakes are high at the end of verse, or verse 18 when Naomi says, 
Ruth, sit down, stop pacing up and down, stressed. Sit down and see what this man's going to do, because by the end of the day, he's going to sort it. Naomi guesses that Boaz is a man of action, and she's right. Verse 1, look at that. Straight away, meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. He's straight up there trying to sort this problem out. And um, uh, when, he, when the kinsman redeemer, this other guy he had mentioned, came along, this is verse 1, Boaz says, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Literally in the Hebrew, it's like, behold, the, the other kinsman redeemer came along. It's just another coincidence, just reminding us that there's an author behind this story driving it along. And Boaz essentially says, mate, step into my office. I've got a business proposition for you. And he says to him, verse 3, Then Boaz said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. Now what's going on there? Well, remember we said that one of the duties of the kinsman redeemer was to marry Ruth? Well, another duty that was was closely linked to it um, was this, guys, if we could have passage from Leviticus come up. This is from God's law that his people were to, to live by. It says, throughout the country that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells some of his property, his nearest relative is to come and redeem what his countrymen has sold so that the land stays in, stays in the family. Thanks. That's great. And so what Boaz is saying to this redeemer is, it's your duty to buy this field from Naomi, so that the field stays in the, in the family. He's appealing to his sense of duty. But he's also a bit of a canny negotiator. Because look how he puts it, verse 4. He says, oh, I thought I should bring this matter to your attention. Literally, it's like, I thought I should uncover, uncover your ear. There's something, uh, let me have a word in your ear about this, this good deal that I've found. You might want to get a piece of it. Uh, and he talks it up. He says at the end of verse 4, If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. He's basically saying, you know, this is a good deal. If you're not going to get involved, tell me, because I I want some of it. And the guy's hooked. He says, I will redeem it. And then Boaz points him to the... He's hooked him in, and he points him to the small print. And he says, verse 5, Oh, well, don't forget, on the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this point, it's the guy's, uh, uh, yeah, uh, and he sort of backs out of it as quick as possible. Verse 6, at this the kinsman redeemer said, uh, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot do it. He's anxious that if he has to marry Ruth and Ruth, Ruth gives birth to a son, then when he dies, his inheritance will have to be split, not just between his children, but also Ruth's son. And so he backs out of it and he says, uh, Boaz, you do it. And we go, brilliant. This is what we wanted. This is, the, this is the happy, you know, this is the couple coming together. It looks like things are going really well. And you get to verse 8. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. Brilliant. And he removed his sandal. What? That's just a bit strange, isn't it? But obviously the explanation is there. In verse 7, that was just how they, that's how they did things in those days. We might shake hands, well, probably we'd sign a contract. 
Verse 7 says, In earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions. And so you imagine if this was a rom-com, you might have the, is it going to happen? Is this, gonna, is this really going to happen? You'd have, if you're a filmmaker back then, you'd have the slow motion of the sandal about to change hands. And it does. And the music kicks in. Brilliant. They're getting married. Let's go to the chapel or wherever they got married in those days. I don't know. Brilliant. And then Boaz, verse 9, comes in with his, with his big speech. He says, Today you are witnesses. Because obviously, it's not just the elders by this point. People have clocked that there's a bit of drama going down. There's something exciting happens. He says to the whole town, you are, you are my witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian and Marlon. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. It's the happy ending. I've bought all the property from Naomi. I've said yes to marrying Ruth. Both Ruth and Naomi are provided for the outsider and the bitter empty one. This is a happy ending. This is the the happy ending of the the rom-com. There's more. Verse 13 So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. As more the women of the town recognise that this is how Naomi is going to be provided for in old age. And um, verse 14 they say, Praise be to the Lord who has this, this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. And the scene we leave it with is the happy family scene. Verse 16, Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The happy scene of her, her bouncing her, her lovely new grandson on her lap. And you think, look how far this woman has come. Look how far this woman who said in chapter 121, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. I am empty. Look what the Lord has done for her. Look how far this woman who thought, she thought she was living in a desolate story. Do you think she's saying that now? She didn't realise it at the end of chapter one. But the author of history had been shepherding her story to a happy ending all along. But we need to move on because the final six verses of this chapter tell us that, that this happy story of Boaz and Ruth and Naomi is just one small part of an even bigger happy story. So this is a happy story about how Boaz redeems Ruth and Naomi. But it's part of a much bigger happy story about how God redeems his nation through Boaz's descendants. So we're on to our second point. The Lord redeemed Israel through Boaz's son. You spotted that, right? So the genealogy, genealogy was read out, those last few names. You spotted, you spotted that name, just jumps out at you twice. David. That is King David. Boaz's son, 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 whatever, is none other than the glorious King David. 
And I love that, right? Do you know, you know where um, King David was from? He was from Bethlehem. Do you know where he was anointed as king by the prophet, prophet Samuel? Bethlehem. And look at that. I mean, they didn't know how wonderfully their prayer would be answered in verse 11. The people say, end of verse 11, May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem, Boaz. Well, Flip, he certainly was. The book of Ruth, you know, was written 200 years after these events. These events happened during the time of the judges. The book of Ruth is written 200 years after that by people who have seen how Boaz's ancestor, ancestor, ancestor is none other than King David. This book is uh, written 200 years after the events by people who know that the story of Boaz and Naomi and Ruth is part of the much bigger happy story about how God was redeeming his nation. It was written by people who saw that there was a happy ending. It was written by people who were able to look back and see how God had been shepherding their nation's history to bring, to put the glorious King David on the throne, the king who would rule justly, the king who, for all his faults, was a man after God's own heart. A king who would subdue Israel's enemies. Ruth was written down 200 years after the events it describes by people who could look back and see how the author of history had been shepherding Israel to this happy, happy ending. Who could look back and see that God had been there in their history working through the minutiae of everyday life to bring about this happy ending. Because when you when you when you realise what is at stake here, you, you look back and you and you see God's fingerprints all over the book of Ruth. See look flip and flip back chapter one verse six. Naomi is in Moab. She hears of food back in Israel. Who is it that brings that food? Well, it's the Lord, obviously. Naomi and Ruth come back to Bethlehem. What time of year do they arrive? Oh, it's no coincidence that it's just as the harvest is beginning. The harvest that is going to play such a crucial role in this story. Ruth decides to go and glean in the fields. Chapter 2, verse 3. Oh, just so happens that of all the fields she could have stepped into, it's Boaz's. Chapter 2, verse 4. Just so happens that as she steps into this one field, of all the fields she could have stepped into, ah, behold, Boaz arrives just in time. Even in this, even in this passage we've looked at this evening, chapter four, Boaz is at the city gate. Behold, just at the time that this other kinsman redeemer is coming past. people who first wrote down this story recognize that the story of their nation is a story of the author of history shepherding the nation for good, bringing about this happy ending of having the glorious King David on the throne. But that's all the more striking when you consider the context in which this story was happening. I've already said it, but flick back to chapter 1, verse 1. When was this happening? Well, during the time of the judges. 
What was that like for Israel? That was bad. We said it a few weeks ago. That was in the time, it's the repeated refrain through the book of Judges. At that time, Israel had no king and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. And it was a time of broken Israel. It was a time of idolatry, a time of mass kidnap, a time of gang rape. See, at the time, this wonderful story of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi was happening. The story of Israel looked precisely like a despondent story. But when we put it in context, when you realise that in the middle of that despondent story of Israel's history during the time of the judges, God had been there working towards this glorious happy ending of King David, you recognise that the author of history has been shepherding Israel for good. Not that it was without pain. David's life wasn't. Before and after he was anointed king. His life was, was notable for its pain. But, but don't you think that the first hearers of this story, when they looked back and saw how God had been wonderfully working in the minutiae of life, don't you think that that would have sort of fostered a, a thankful humility amongst them? We didn't get here by ourselves. God has been working to put King David on the throne. Don't you think it would have fostered in them a hope for the future? If God could work in the bleakest, the most desolate of all situations in the time of the judges, don't you think he can work into the future to bring about good? Don't you think it would have fostered a sort of a holiness in them, remembering that God is involved in the day-to-day details of life? So be holy, don't give up, even when things look desolate. First readers of this story would have recognised that God was there shepherding their nation's history, even in desolate times. And that would have followed, uh, fostered humility, hope and holiness. And that is certainly what it's meant to instil in us. Because while we realise that this happy story of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi is part of the happier story of how the glorious King David got on the throne, we also recognise that that is just a small part of the even happier universal cosmic story of how God has been shepherding all of history to put King Jesus on the throne. That's our third point. The Lord redeems us through David's son. Flick on to Matthew chapter 1. Look, this is, the, this is the genealogy of Jesus, verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. But then you look across the column to verse 5, and the names, the names look wonderfully familiar to us now. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And you realise that this happy story is part of the cosmic universal story of how God brought Jesus, King Jesus, into the world. And again, that that prayer that those guys prayed in Ruth chapter 4 verse 11, Boaz, may you be famous in Bethlehem. Well, that was answered in quite a big way, wasn't it? The fact that billions of people around the world every year celebrate the birth of his son, 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 son in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. See, those names in the genealogy of Jesus, they could just look like bare names in history. 
They could just be names in a desolate story where there's no purpose, where there's no one orchestrating anything, if we just had those names. But the book of Ruth opens a window into those names. And we realize that at each point of that genealogy, God has been there orchestrating, planning, shepherding history to put King Jesus on the throne. In the big things, no doubt. In the rise and fall of nations, that's what Isaiah teaches us. But also, in precisely the time of year that a desperate widow would choose to return to her hometown. God has been shepherding all of history in precisely the field that a Moabite woman would choose to step into 3,000 years ago. Reality, Ruth, this book of Ruth tells us, is not a desolate story where things are left to chance. Reality, book of Ruth tells us, is not a story with no purpose. The author of history is shepherding reality to the happiest of endings. See, the people who first read this story, they they read how God, through Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, redeemed Ruth and redeemed Naomi. But we read how God, through Jesus, the ultimate redeemer, is redeeming us. These people read how Boaz married Ruth, but we know that all of history is working towards that final day, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where God will gather his bride, his church, to be his forever, where he will delight over her as a bridegroom delights over a bride. The first people who read this saw how Boaz had um, ensured that the, the inheritance of land stayed in Naomi's family. We read how God is preparing an inheritance for his people, kept in heaven for us, the new heavens and the new earth that will never perish or spoil or fade, where there'll be no more mourning or crying or tears anymore, where we will see God's face. We will see the river of life and the tree of life bearing fruit in season. That is where history is heading. Not by chance, there is a happy ending. This is the true story. Oh, look, you may be here tonight not calling yourself a Christian. But let me be a little bit provocative. This is true whether you believe it or not. Whether you or I believe that this is the truth of reality has, has precisely no bearing on whether it is true or not. The only bearing it has is whether you, whether you get to benefit in this story. And I would put it to you, even if your worldview is a, is a if you like, a, a, a desolate worldview, where, there, where we think there is no sort of uh, meta-narrative, no author's purpose or anything like that, no one is shepherding history towards a happy ending. I'd put it to you, the very fact that we as a culture love happy endings, the very fact that we love heroes, the very love, fact that we love purpose, tells me that deep down we can't ignore the fact that somehow we know that there is a purpose towards history's heading. The truth is that the author of history is shepherding history towards the happiest of endings. Oh sure, there will be suffering. There will be pain along the way. There was for Jesus. There will, there will be for us. Now remember what we said at the beginning. Bad things happen to people in movies like Disney films. Those things hurt. They cause real pain. 
But the point is that those bad things, that pain happens in the context of reality where history is heading towards a happy ending, where there is a benevolent author controlling every aspect of that history. This passage of Ruth opens up a window for us onto that reality. Things are coming to a happy conclusion. That helps me be humble. Helps me to be humble because... Yeah, I recognize I don't know the full picture, like that keyhole stuff Simon was saying. But I do know that when I stand on the edge of glory on that first day and look back at my life, I will see how every bit of the story was working for good to get me to that happy ending. Until then, I hope and I commit myself to be holy. Now look, I'll finish by just a small way in which... This uh, affected me this week. I'm aware that in, it is, that it is in, in a sense, an entirely trivial example. And I don't want to make light of any of you guys who have had bad weeks or having bad times in life, really bad things. But this encouraged me this week as I was... Um, I bought a new bike last week. First time I rode it, chain, chain came off twice. Uh, and then the next day I pumped up the tyres too much. The inner tube exploded. So they're sitting in the rain, waiting for the bus, desperate to get into the office to work on this sermon. I thought, okay, remember God's in control. Remember the author of history shepherding all of history towards a happy conclusion. Be humble. It doesn't matter ultimately if you get to spend a few fewer hours on your sermon. History is going towards that glorious final day. Be hopeful. Be holy. Don't grumble under your breath at the bike shop you bought it from. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, forgive us when we live as if we live in a desolate story, where we think you are absent, when we think you have deserted us. Thank you that you have and do and will guide the minutiae of history to bring about that glorious consummation when we see the new heavens and the new earth coming from you out of heaven as a bride dressed for her husband. Thank you that you are working all things to that end. Thank you that for all Christians, you are working everything in their lives to get them to there. We praise you for that. And in light of that, Heavenly Father, make us people who are humble, hopeful, and holy. Amen.